Hey all, it's Jesse. As 2020 draws to a close, think about what you're thankful for. Other than I'm willing to bet 2020 drawing to a close. What got you through the year? Odds are, if you're hearing my voice, public radio was one of the things. Public radio gave you accurate, dependable news about the election and the pandemic, information about local stories that matter to you. You got fun and fascinating interviews from shows like Bullseye. If you want to show your gratitude at the end of this year, consider supporting your local public radio station. Public radio stations really need your help right now, more than ever. And it's really easy to do. Just go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye and give whatever you can. And thanks. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're a fan of comics, odds are you're familiar with Adrian Tomine already. Maybe you read his series Optic Nerve or know his books like Killing and Dying and Shortcoming. They're reminiscent of Daniel Klaus or Jaime Hernandez, maybe Harvey Picar. Dark, realistic, but with an edge of humor as well. And even if you aren't a fan of comics, you've probably seen Adrian's work. He's done several covers for The New Yorker, including a couple recently that illustrate the absurdity, frustration, and isolation many people are experiencing after being home so long. Messy apartments, dates over video chat, Daniel Tiger episodes playing on repeat as kids climb up the walls. Adrian's got a new book out now. It's called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist. And in it, he takes a little bit of a different approach— For one, there's the presentation. The book looks like a notebook, each page written on graph paper. It's also autobiographical. Tominate recounts book tours, trips to the doctor, even an interview he did on NPR's Fresh Air. Conducting our interview with Adrian is Brian Heater. Brian is an editor for TechCrunch and the host of the podcast Recommended If You Like. He's interviewed Adrian many times before and has seen him go from a small print indie comics artist to, these days, a real big deal comics artist and a screenwriter. So let's get into it. Brian Heater and Adrian Tomine. Adrian Tomine, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. Hi, Brian. How you doing? Uh, I am doing well, all things considered. How is the book tour going for you so far? <laughs> the book tour, uh, uh, I didn't even know exactly what whose book tour you were, you were referring to it when you asked, but uh, it's fine. It's mostly me just locking myself in, in the bathroom and uh, talking to the computer for a little bit. But, um, you know, I was, I was disappointed at first when, it, when all the plans changed uh, because we'd already set up this whole cross-country tour and everything. But, um, you know, some of the, the one-on-one chats that I've done, I think, have gone maybe even a little better than if, if we were standing or sitting in front of an audience and kind of, you know, chasing after <laughs> the audience reaction rather than just having a, a real direct conversation. I know I've, I've felt less uh, self-conscious doing mm. the, the Q&As on a computer as opposed to in front of an audience. In a lot of ways, the loneliness of the long distance cartoonist is really your most personal and I think it's safe to say potentially embarrassing book. Is there an upside to doing this, to having these conversations remotely? Oh, yeah. 
hundred percent. I mean, I was prepared or I wasn't prepared, but I was expecting some kind of mental breakdown that I'd have while on the road promoting this book while, you know, the real life experiences actually surpass the embarrassment that I depict within the book and, uh, um, you know, hating it because it's uh, good material that didn't make it into the book, but also having to <laughs> endure it. And so, yeah, definitely. I was, I, I had a lot of, there, there were even like specific cities where I was like, oh, I know so-and-so lives in that town and, you know, people that I was afraid I would <laughs> run into along the way. And, um, and, and specific questions that I, I knew I would have gotten from, from an audience Q and a, but probably would not get from a, <laughs> a professional. <laughs> I'm curious. You have specific examples of something that uh, I probably won't ask you, though, that a stranger in the audience might. I was pretty sure that there'd be questions about my digestive issues, <laughs> digestive issues that I wouldn't want to go into on stage. And, uh, you know, just in general, I tried to make the book seem very casual and, and, and forthright and everything, especially with regards to my family. It was very, very carefully calculated about how much I wanted to reveal and and how much I felt like I could uh, expose other people. And so I, I didn't want to be in a situation where someone would say like, well, what did, you know, and they refer to my, my kids and, and ask me about them or something like that. And it, just because my, my nature is just to, I, I love talking about them and I would love to, you know, there's many much funnier anecdotes that didn't make it into the book. And I think I'd feel in my my need to get laughs <laughs> on on stage, that I would I would expose them in a way that uh, that it's probably better if I don't. Uh, you know, I, I get the sense that every time you release a book, there is kind of there, there, there's um there's some nerves attached to it. You yeah. know, something that you've been working on for a really long time, you're finally putting out into the world, and in each one of these books' case, they're all personal in different ways. How did the nerves surrounding the release of this book compare to previous books? Part of the, part of the, the nerves of, of releasing a book is that I, I've tried to sort of, uh, at least with the last handful of books, to try and challenge myself to do something a little different each time out, whether it's in terms of the drawing style or um, the subject matter or the tone or, you know, something as simple as color versus black and white. And so you know, I think there's sort of a, an ease and a confidence that can come with just kind of doing the same thing with each book, maybe perfecting it a little bit each time. Because you, you know that there's not going to be any real unexpected response to it. I mean, it'll either be positive or it'll be, you know, you know, more of the same or something like that. But it won't be like, well, he really made a wrong turn this time. And so that's always the main thing that's on my mind is... Um, you know, if I'm lucky enough to get sort of a good response to something like um, my previous book, Killing and Dying, there's a part of me that just wants to get more of that same <laughs> that same approbation. And so, to do something different is always what weighs on me. Like I'm, I envision the the negative reviews that say, like, "Well, he should have stuck with what he was good at," or something like that. And on top of that, with this one, of course, the idea of doing something that's so um, explicitly autobiographical was a challenge. I mean, I've, I've drawn myself as a character in the past, but, um, in very actually impersonal ways, like, uh, you know, it, it really makes no difference whether it was me or a fictional character because the, the stories were so benign. So when I started this one, I really kind of 
gave myself the challenge of like, you know, let's, let's try and go into some uncomfortable areas because no one wants to read 200 pages of, of just kind of light, uh, uplifting anecdotes. <laughs> At least I don't. Do you get the sense that any or most of these stories could have worked as fictional stories that they could have made it into one of your like more, I guess, for lack of a better word, traditional books? Yeah. Well, that was something that I, I, thought about it first. And, and I think in a lot of ways, it would have been maybe more commercial, you know, especially since now it seems like every graphic novel is <laughs> a springboard for, for a movie or TV project or something like that. I don't know. Like some, sometimes the, the qualities that I look for in art are negatives <laughs> to, 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 to other people. Like I want art that is as specific and, and personal as possible. But, you know, you look at what is kind of like the mainstream blockbuster hits and, and it's kind of the, the antithesis of that. But the thing that, um, I mean, aside from just not necessarily wanting to, to make that book, uh, the, the, the thing that really impeded me was I started to think of like how much bizarre world building and, and fictionalization that it would require to, to translate this material and so like to come up with like, um, he's, he's the young Asian American, uh, Frisbee player who's new on the scene. And there's some more experienced Frisbee players who, you know, take him under his wing or, you know, all these things that just seem so stupid. And, uh, and then I started really thinking that the best way to present this material is to give the audience the, the, the knowledge that it's absolutely true. And it, it literally did happen to me. And I think that that makes some of the things, um, funnier or more impactful. How seriously are you considering things like uh, commercial potential and, and how pragmatically, you know, when you sit down and work on a project that's going to take you five or seven years, say, um, how pragmatic are you being about that commercial potential and has having a family, has that impacted those concerns? <laughs> I'm not as uh pragmatic about it as I, as I probably should be. And, and I don't, um, I, I think the main thing is that the, 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 the process of creating a big comic, like a, a long work is at least for me is so daunting and takes so much time and energy that there's no way I could get through a 200 page project if my heart wasn't a hundred percent in it. Like, I don't think, um, I think a lot of people have this illusion that selling out is, is the easiest path. Uh, and, and for me, it would actually be really difficult for me to sit down and think like, well, what would be the most adaptable kind of story? And, and let me think of, of an actor and I'll, and I'll kind of create a character that that actor will instantly relate to and want to, and feel flattered by and want to buy the rights to this, you know, and then, and then now let me spend seven years <laughs> executing that idea. I, I just, it would be a real, a real challenge. And I don't think I, I would have the correct intuition to do it in a successful way. I mean, one of the strangest things that I've discovered um, in recent years is that the things that I maybe thought would be um, appealing in that way get zero interest. I mean, um, and then, and then things that uh, I assumed you know, like, like this new book, for example, that I assumed would be completely uncommercial and, and was way too personal. And, and, um, you know, that ends up getting the most, uh, attention, you know, it's the, the, the inquiries from, from Hollywood 
about this book have, have completely surprised me um, in, in, in a way that I never, never could have envisioned. So you are having those conversations with, uh, with producers about this book? Yeah, I, I don't, you know, discount any, any conversation out of hand. I, 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 I do <laughs> the exploratory work and yeah, there's, there's a bunch of projects related to various books of mine that are sort of up in the air right now. Some, some less so, um, there's a, there's a, a movie that just finished production in, in France. Um, I think this week they actually finished shooting it. That's uh, based on some of my stuff. So does working in that medium, does that interest you? You know, obviously you're good friends with Dan Klaus. He's done um, a number of, of yeah. movies. He's actually done the screenwriting on uh, a few of them as well. Would you be interested in making that transition or at least exploring work outside of art and comics? Very much so. Um, in fact, at least right now, um, this phase of my life and and through you know, much of, of quarantine aside from, uh, uh, promoting the new book. Um, I've, I've been basically like a full-time screenwriter and, uh, I've been really enjoying it. It's, it's, it's a, you know, it also makes me appreciate a lot about making comics too. So I'm sure that I'll, I'll get back to that soon, but, um, it, it is nice to be doing something different. And, uh, I don't know if it's just the fact that it's something different or if it's, the, the work itself, but my, my wife is always commenting about how, what a good mood I seem in at the, at the end of the work day, <laughs> in contrast to the, the past, whatever decade that she's had to endure me. Do you feel that having done comics for a few decades now that that was good preparation for writing screenplays? I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I can't, I can't, you know, live an alternate life where I didn't have that experience and tried to write screenplays. You know, logically, it seems like yes, but for all I know, it it might be a bit of a hindrance too. I mean, a lot of the challenge for me is to not overwrite and not try and describe every single detail in the way that I would draw every single detail in in a panel. Um, And so it's a lot of kind of uh, trying to, to resist that impulse. And it's also, you know, it's by nature a very collaborative process, which, um, Making comics, at least for me, is is not at all. I mean, I, I I basically work in isolation on a book and then give it to my publisher, and if they like it, they 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 publish it. But there's not a lot of editorial back and forth or or checking in along the way or or anything like that. It's very different, and I think um, yeah, I think cartooning has has given me certain skills that I'm I'm bringing to these new endeavors. But I think it's also maybe given me some bad habits in terms of how I expect to work now. When it comes to doing strictly things in the comics medium, uh, do you find that you abandon a lot of work along the way? I can't afford to anymore. <laughs> I, I used to. I, I could just kick myself when I think back on how much time and energy I wasted when I was younger. Like I would, you know, spend months writing a story and then draw half of it with, you know, zipatone and corrections and all this stuff, and then decide that I didn't like it and just put it aside. Um, it's kind of a OCD thing, but like I would work on a page and, you know, after five days of working on it, I'd make a little mistake and it would annoy me so much that instead of just cutting out the, the, the mistake or, or, or painting over it or something like that, I would start over, which now just seems like 
you know, insanity. <laughs> uh, and so I think maybe, I don't know, starting with killing and dying and then, and then this new book, I, I feel like my work time is so limited. Uh, and, 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 and then my lifetime is so limited that I feel like, uh, once I embark on a project, you know, I really got to find a way to make it work. Um, and I think sometimes that's, that's, um, interesting. I think sometimes maybe that struggle gives a little energy to the work that, that wouldn't have come through something that just sailed through easily. I mean, you're, you're not an old man, but <laughs> given, I, I guess, given how long it takes to work on one of these books, right? does your mind immediately go to kind of quantifying how many of these you can potentially churn out? Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I think my friends and I have all turned that corner where we've gotten out a scrap of paper and we've done a few calculations <laughs> about how many books we have left in us. One of the nice things about having cartoonist friends who are mostly older than me is that um, I can sort of see them go through all these things a few years ahead of me <laughs> and, and brace myself for it. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I think that's definitely something that you, you are oblivious to when you're younger and you're, you're, you think you have all the time in the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, like, uh, granted, there was a lot of other things going on in my life at the time, but the book before this one, Killing and Dying, from start to finish took about seven years, which, you know, especially when you have kids that are, that are growing up, you know, before your very eyes, the idea of like burying your nose in some project for seven years seems, um, you know, pretty unappealing to me right now. We have a lot more with Adrian Tomine still to come. After the break, what happens when a cartoonist turns his experience as a guest on Fresh Air into a cartoon? People ask him about it. Lots of people. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from the new Showtime limited series, Your Honor, an edge-of-your-seat thriller starring Brian Cranston. Your Honor is the story of a respected New Orleans judge whose teenage son is involved in a hit-and-run. What follows is a deadly game of lies, deceit, and impossible choices. Your Honor on Showtime. Try 30 days free, then just $8.99 a month for life. Go to Showtime.com. Terms apply. New customers only. All right, Adam. uh, Maximum Fun wants us to record like a promo to tell people that they should listen to The Greatest Generation. You want to do that? No, I am tired of all the extra work. I just wanted to talk about Star Trek with my friend. I think it would be good to like try and get some new listeners by appealing to the audiences of other shows. Like this, this will only take a minute or two. It could be good for us. We sit down for an hour every week and talk about a Star Trek episode and make a bunch of idiotic fart jokes about it. It's embarrassing. If it got out that we made this show, I think it would make us unemployable. Adam, I have bad news for you. We have tens of thousands of listeners at MaximumFun.org. Oh my god. I think I'm going to throw up. The Greatest Generation, a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. Every Monday on MaximumFun.org. I'm really going to be sick. Abigail Disney says if she ran the family company, she'd deal with the current economic crisis very differently. A CEO should be like a ship's captain. You know, if other people are drowning, you're the last one off the ship. Ideas about the history and future of finding financial stability. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey all, it's Jesse again with a reminder that now the end of the year is a great time to support your local NPR member station. Do it now. Go to donate.npr.org slash bullseye. And thanks. 
Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Our guest is Adrian Tomine. Adrian is a cartoonist and the author of several comics collections and graphic novels. He's also illustrated covers for The New Yorker. His newest book is an illustrated memoir called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist. It's out now. He's being interviewed by our friend Brian Heater, an editor at TechCrunch and host of the podcast, Recommended If You Like. Let's get back into it. Over the course of the, this book, which really starts when you're in grade school and yeah. you are, you know, you do the thing where the teacher brings you up and asks you what you want to do for a living. And you say, you know, I want to be a, I think a cartoonist is the word you actually use at the time. No, no, it's more embarrassing than that because I actually said that I wanted to be a famous cartoonist. A famous cartoonist, <laughs> sure. Um, you know, to, to the to the amusement of, I guess the amusement of your teacher and the and the amusement of uh, the rest of the kids in, the, in class. But, you know, something I, I think we, we don't really talk about a lot is um, I mean, it's something that in a lot of ways you've been single-mindedly focused on for not single-mindedly, but, but it has occupied so much of your, your mind share for such a long period of your life. So that feels liberating to for, for your, the first point in your life to really not be thinking or actively engaging with comics. Yes. I mean, I, I think that there was just, and it wasn't by design at all. Um, but I feel like there was an amazing confluence of, of factors that led me to kind of write that book that, that wrestled with some of these issues and, and wondered if I should really be spending so much of my time thinking and, and working on comics. And then that book came out and the pandemic struck and these uh, screenwriting opportunities came up and it all just kind of flowed together where it was almost like that book was sort of, um, you know, the, the, the start of a, of a, of a, of a new phase in my life. And, and I didn't, I didn't plan that at all. I sort of thought like, well, this will be the book where I kind of think about that stuff. And then, you know, if people read the book and see, read it to the very end, they'll see that it kind of doesn't really resolve anything. And if anything, it sort of implies that I'm going to, jump right back to work on, on another comic, despite what I've, I've arrived at, uh, philosophically. Um, but, but things didn't work out that way. And, um, you know, and I, and I, I know it's, it's something that I will return to, but, um, right now, like having sort of an imposed break from it in ways that I never could have consciously imposed upon myself. Like, I think it really took all these unbelievable external forces to, to truly, change my life in the way in the way that it has at this point in your career is making comics is it still a pleasurable experience are there pleasurable aspects of it or is it something that you've kind of in a sense been saddled with since you were a kid it's it's both i mean um i would say that if i can get to the experience the mindset of making comics that i had when i was a kid in other words where you are creating purely for the joy of creating and you're not concerned about what it's at the expense of or what you're missing out on. And the results are coming out at least to your eye pretty well. And, and most importantly, when you have that feeling of, of time just sort of floating and, and you look up and you think you've been working for 15 minutes and, you know, three hours have passed or something like that. You, you can't replace that with anything. And so, so when, when I have those experiences, um, it really outweighs any, any, any negative. 
but it is it is difficult to to achieve that sometimes. Yeah, you know, just in in general, I, I, it's it's hard for me to say because this alternative work that I'm doing right now isn't that different. I'm still sitting in the same room, just at a different desk, and you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't change that much. But um, you know, I, I'm sure if if the the, the the job that I was doing now was, uh, you know, roofing or something like that. I, I, I would <laughs> really, really miss making comics a lot. And, and I, and I still feel that to a degree. I always, um, think that, uh, anytime I have a, a really annoying meeting about movie or TV stuff, it pushes me one step closer back to, to making more, <laughs> more comics. <laughs> have you drawn anything? Have you drawn for yourself in the meantime? Yeah, I mean, I'm still maintaining what is left of my illustration career, and uh, mm-hmm. I think I can say this, but uh, throughout the, the the quarantine, I think I've had maybe three or four covers for The New Yorker that were approved and accepted and completed, and then at the last minute were made obsolete by by the the sudden change in in the news or something like that. Um, so I've been unfortunately doing a lot of drawing that has not seen the light of day, but you're, I mean, you're not really a sketchbook guy or do you just kind of, uh, I guess, I guess kind of keep, keep your skills up by drawing more casually for yourself. I've, I've, I've tried to, to get back into it, you know, like, um, I'm definitely, on, on the lazier side of that spectrum compared to, to some of my, my peers who I, I honestly don't understand it. Like they'll be working all day on a comic. And then when they're eating dinner, they're doodling in their sketchbook or something like that, or, or for fun, they'll, they'll draw. And yeah, I, I, I am definitely not one of those people, but um, especially while we've all been home and not being, being able to do as much, I have been doing more, you know, sketchbook kind of pleasure drawing. And, you know, one of the things that I I've been doing is like, because I've been watching (laughs) more TV than usual and feeling guilty about it, I've been trying to draw while watching TV. And so I was for a while on, on Instagram, I was posting sketches that I was doing of, of people (laughs) that I was, that I was watching on TV obviously and and this isn't specific to you but obviously to some degree anytime you're working in fiction there's going to be a, a certain amount of autobiography a certain amount of truth and and that's that does absolutely hold for a lot of the work that you've done in the past um you know given the sensitivity of certain topics even though you are perhaps xing out some names <laughs> do you feel that there are things that you can reveal or that there are truths that you are able to get to in fiction that you can't in memoir? Oh, a hundred percent. I'm, I'm a very inhibited person. I mean, as much as people talk about like, I can't believe you showed yourself sitting on the toilet or something like that, that really, I mean, really in the scope of like human shame, <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty, pretty minor. And yeah, there's, uh, that, that was a real struggle. And, and, and I think that for sure there, there are, lots of topics and and experiences that for me are, are better funneled through, through fiction. And, and in fact, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily something that I want to do right on the heels of this book, but I have had ideas for a fictional book about an author 
on the road. And I think that that would be a place for me to put in a lot of the things that I didn't feel comfortable making uh, autobiographical. So before we go, I do have to ask you, there is one story in this book that is relevant to this current situation right now. Uh, the, the fresh air interview. That you oh, did, of course. <laughs> which um, obviously didn't go exactly as, as you had hoped. And clearly there were a lot of uh, external forces. Well, I mean, first of all, I got to preempt this because uh, what's happened is since I, since the book has come out, people have gone to the, the website and have found that episode <laughs> and, and they say, Oh, you're, you're so you're so full of it. You're trying to like create drama that wasn't there. And you're trying to like be falsely modest or something. Cause the interview was fine. And my defense is that that is purely a testament to the, the, the skill and, and kindness of the editors at, uh, on fresh air who like surgeons work magic on the raw material. There are so many incidents and moments from that interview that I remember <laughs> with crystal clear clarity that have been artfully omitted or finessed. So um, I, yeah, that's, that's been, I, I've, I've wanted to clarify that because people have held that up as empirical proof that this whole book is, is <laughs> or something. Sure. And, and I want to go on record as, you know, somebody who's followed you for a while and we've had a number of conversations over the years that I believe I, I believe that you you accurately portrayed the situation, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, but but I have to ask, and you know, having having done this for a while, do you feel that you have become a better interviewee? That you become more um, more comfortable with being on that side of the mic and being, I guess, kind of probed to some degree. I wonder is that what you're. Is that what your take on it is? Having having talked to me over the years, <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you know, I, I think you're kind of more comfortable and and have opened up quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the best the best way for me to learn and improve at anything is by by failing. You know, uh, especially with with this totally bizarre aspect of, of the job that, that literally did not exist before my generation of cartoonists, but this idea of having to promote yourself and to be a, a public figure in, in some minor capacity. And, and, you know, just the fact that cartoonists now have to even give a thought to how they look about what their hair looks like or what they're wearing or, or anything like that is, is, is horrible. I think it's, it's a terrible betrayal of, of what this job looked like when I started out. Um, but you know, there, there's no, there's no training for it. You know, like you can, there's actually colleges now where you can go learn to be a cartoonist and they teach you how to ink and how to use a tablet and, and, and all these things, but there's no training for this side of the job. And I imagine if you were in any industry where there was a higher, uh, amount of money involved, you would have people who, who took you to a stylist and who taught you, gave you media training and in advance told you like, here's who this interviewer is and this is what to expect. And there's none of that in, in, in my world. And it's, you know, um, so many experiences like the one that you're talking about where I just sort of like, I'm looking at an address that was given to me and I kind of wander into some building and then <laughs> suddenly I'm in the middle of the situation that I wasn't expecting. And so my training has been 
on the job, unfortunately. And so, um, you know, if I'm a little bit more comfortable doing it now, it's because I was horrible on fresh air. <laughs> well, Adrian, you, you did you did great today. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Adrian Tomine, interviewed by Brian Heater. Adrian's new book, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist, is available to buy now from your local bookstore. Thanks to Brian Heater for talking with him. Brian's podcast, Recommended If You Like, is a great listen. He's got another interview with Adrian on there, plus conversations with folks like Open Mike Eagle, Van Dyke Parks, and Ralph Nader. You might know him from our college improv group, Humor Force 5. Not Ralph Nader, Brian. Anyway. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where, you know, they say red tape prevents you from building homes here in Los Angeles, but they sure are building one right across from my living room. So, you know, sorry if you've heard it. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We also get some help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks very much to them and to their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. If you want to hear the latest about what we are up to, you can keep up with the show on Twitter at Bullseye on Facebook at facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We post all of our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.